our Father in heaven, we thank you, Father, for all that we have in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you that you've called us, Father, to walk with you and to serve you and to live for you. We thank you, Lord, for Good News Bible Church. And, Father, that you have placed your elders to lead the body of Christ. Father, as we look today at your word, we ask, God, that your spirit might lead and guide. And, Father, we ask, God, that you would remove from my thoughts things that shouldn't be said, and that you would place before me things that should be said if they're not written down already. Father, we pray that your spirit might lead and guide in all this done and said. In Jesus' name, amen. Chuck, where are you? I, yesterday I was here for the men's breakfast, and I too heard how great thou art. And I thought, oh, that's great. That's an old song. And I'm serious. Every time I hear it, I think back to when I was probably 10 years old. I'd go to vacation Bible school at this Central Baptist Church. And I remember very clearly now, just a few years later, singing How Great Thou Art as an 8 or 10 year old. Wonderful. Wonderful memory of tradition of God's Word. Well, about two weeks ago, some of us who are familiar with a guy named Rob Bell began to hear about a new book coming out called Love Wins. Love Wins. It's a book about heaven and hell and the fate of every person who ever lived. Rob is a pastor of an evangelical church in Grand Rapids, probably around 10,000 people. Some of you may be familiar with him from his NUMA DVDs. He's a man who has made a career really of asking questions and kind of hitting home on issues that we need to deal with. Some of you may have never heard of him, and that's okay. But as we look today at God's Word and, and the whole issue of, of false teaching coming in, I thought that would just raise this issue because Rob, who is an evangelical, went to Fuller Seminary, has written a book, and he asked probably 365 questions or so in the book. But this is kind of a summary of what he says in the book. Hell is what we create for ourselves when we reject God's love. Hell is what we create. Not that there's a real hell, but hell is what we create. But hell isn't forever. God will have his way because he's a God of love. God will have his way. How can his good purposes fail? Every sinner will turn to God and realize he's already been reconciled to God in this life or the next. There will be no eternal conscious torment. And God says, no to injustice in the age to come. But he does not pour out wrath. So we may bring it on ourselves temporarily. And he certainly does not punish for eternity. Because in the end, love wins. Well, if someone denies hell, if someone denies the wrath of God, 
Is he not also denying God's love? Because we're familiar with the fact that, well, this is, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sins. This means that, in reality, that he has rejected God's love. Because God in his love sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. That we, when we repent of our sins and turn to him in faith, have eternal life. Too often our culture defines terms that are so important. Our culture today has defined love. It's refused to look at other parts of God, other characteristics of God. It's refused to look at His wrath or His holiness or His justice. If we turn today to Scripture, Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, we're reminded that false teachers and false teaching have been around throughout the ages. Again, our passage today as you turn, Titus chapter 1, verse 10 through 16. Titus 1, 10 through 16. And Chuck, I too print out my passages so I can see it a little bit better than the Bible. Let's read one more time. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shame for gain, for they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in their faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit, for any good work. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we're in Titus 1. Last week, Pastor Eric looked at 1 Timothy and the whole um, responsibility of, of uh, deacons. But two weeks ago, we looked at first uh, chapter of Titus, verses 5 through 9. And if you remember, Paul said to Titus, Remain in Crete. Straighten things out. Put things in order. And appoint elders. He said that elders were to be blameless, not flawless, not perfect, but men whom acquisition could not be uh, held against. They were to be blameless in three basic areas, in their marriage and family, in their conduct and character, and in sound doctrine. And in verse 9, says that Elders, were in particular, were to hold fast to sound doctrine, to God's word, so they could 
instruct or teach, and also to refute false teaching. This section today begins with four, because we're looking back. Why did, did Paul want to make sure that, that capable elders were appointed? Because there was an issue before the church, an issue of false teachers. Paul is telling young Titus, you're responsible. You're responsible to put things in place. And there are these false teachers. You can't let them slide. You can't be tolerant. He said similar things to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And you haven't got to turn there. I'll read it for you. Stay there in Ephesus, Timothy, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The presence of false teachers has always been a problem throughout the, the church age, throughout the, the age of the church. And a close examine, examination of, of cults reveals that many cults begin in evangelical uh, backgrounds and homes. According to Harold Vassell, author of Unholy Devotion, published by Zondervan, he, he, he goes into several different uh, cult leaders, false teachers. Uh, Sun Moon, founder of Unification Church, was raised in a Presbyterian church. Mary Baker uh, Eddy, founder of the Christian Scientist, was raised in a distinctly Christian home. Charles Stays Russell, founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, raised in a strong Christian home. Being a Southerner, this kind of hits home hard. Not a Southern Baptist, though. The Southern Baptist Church today is the greatest source of converts to Mormonism. This passage reminds us today that we must be able to refute false teaching, defend God's Word. It's not enough just that we teach God's Word. We must refute false teaching. Sometimes we have a problem dealing with the negative. You know, our culture today is to be tolerant. But I think verse 9 is very clear that we are to instruct in sound doctrine, and also to refute false teaching. In verses 10 and 11, we see the concern over the false teachers and the impact on the body of Christ. Verse 10 and 11 there, it says that there are many who are insubordinate. It goes on, it says, they must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. The number of false teachers back then were increasing at such a rate that they couldn't just let it slide. Paul tells Titus to silence them because they're large in number. False doctrine always affects the behavior of followers. It always has a negative impact on the lifestyle of its, of its followers. It says that the entire families were being upset, overturned, ruining families. We're not told exactly what the false doctrine was. We can take some, some, some guesses based on 
the culture, what we've read, read in Scripture in that time, it was, we think probably it was a, kind of a faith plus, faith plus circumcision, faith plus um, obeying the Mosaic laws. Um, some would say that it was a prohibition against marriage, which would very clearly go along with that. We don't know. But these individuals rejected God's word. And when we see how Paul describes them, they, they're not a very pretty picture when you look at them. Not a pretty picture, but you know what? If we were there, to be there, they'd look very normal. They'd probably be very winsome. They'd probably be dressed very well. They would probably be very articulate, well-educated. Teaching initially probably was virtually right on, except for maybe one minor little point. One point would be off. It was very devastating, of course. So first, we see the concern, and secondly, we see the description, as I said, it wasn't a pretty picture. In verse 10, Paul says that they are insubordinate, they are rebellious, they are not subject to authority. False teachers, they want to be associated with the church, but they don't want to come underneath the leadership of the church. Over the years, I've seen how people want to be independent. They've come and said, well, Pastor Rapp, I want to start a small group. And so we began to give them instructions on how, they, how we run small groups, and they say, well, you know, I don't think I want to be a part of Mosaic. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not saying these people were necessarily uh, false teachers, but the point is there's that insubordination, that unwillingness to come underneath the elders. Secondly, it says that in verse 10 also that they were empty talkers. They were idle uh, talkers, smooth talkers. They were fluent. They were persuasive. Third, they were deceivers. They were self-deceiving, but they deceived others. In verse 13, Paul says of the, the Christians um, that one of their prophets described them as, uh, let me find it here, always liars. Always liars. Not, not occasional lying, always. Always lying. As a matter of fact, they had words in the, in the culture back then. To lie was to play the Cretan. Or to lie was to Cretanize. Secondly, this prophet says that there were evil beasts, base animals. Their whole focus was sensual. They were malicious. They were vicious. They were also, according to this prophet, Lazy gluttons. And the word literally means slow bellies. Slow bellies. They were lazy. They were absorbed in themselves. And finally, in verse 16, it says that they were detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Not really a very pretty picture, is it? Not very pretty. But again... If you were there, they would look good. They'd be persuasive. They would sound virtually right on. 
a close examination of cults over the years, you'll see over and over and over and over mass sexual immorality, mass misuse of funds. It happens over and over. When verse 10, we see the source of this false teaching. It says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. If we think back to when the church began, we know initially that it was Jewish, but God's word began to, to be taught and in Gentile areas, and people came to Christ. And if, you, and if you think back, I'm sure in Acts, you can remember that there were some Jewish believers who felt like that, hey, these Gentiles need to be circumcised. And these Gentiles, they need to follow the Mosaic laws. Probably about 15 years prior to this time, the Council of Jerusalem was convened to deal with this whole issue because basically they wanted Gentiles to convert to Judaism really in order to become a Christian of course the decision of the the council was no it's not what God's word says the problem even continued later on though because if you think back many of us will remember when when Peter as he interacted with Gentiles would eat with them until there was this party from Jerusalem, I think it was, that came with James. And they said, you can't eat with Gentiles. And Peter quickly stopped eating. So the issue continued on. Of course, the key in this whole issue is the concern for the gospel. The gospel was being added to. The gospel was another gospel. It was a false gospel. Third, I want us to look at the errors of the false teachers. It's in verses 14, 15, and 16. Verse 14 says, Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Not devoting themselves to the commands of people who turn from the truth. Not devoting themselves to commands with people who turn away from the truth. You know, I, I think about our culture today, and how, how could Paul say that these people were wrong? How could he say that they weren't devoted to the truth? Because see, you've got to, today you've got to be gentle. We've got to be Tolerant. But Paul literally said they turned from the truth. They turned from the truth. They turned from the truth to commands of God. I mean, or rather, from uh, commands of God to commands of man. Mark 7, 7 and 8 says, In vain they do worship me. Teaching is doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. Again, you have that faith. Jesus Christ is the way. Faith, faith plus. Faith plus circumcision. Faith plus keeping the laws. Faith plus. 
Rob Bell, going back to him, has turned from what God's Word says about God. He claims many times that God is love. But he fails to see what God's Word says about God's holiness, His wrath, His justice. So first, we see the errors, one, they turn from God's Word to man's Word. Secondly, they have a false idea of purity. They have a wrong idea of how we begin to be like Christ. Like the Pharisees, they valued the external, the, the, the ritual, if you will, over that, that changes within the heart. Mark 7.15 says, there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of the person are what defile him. See, now these Jewish people who come to Christ, they were still saying there were some things that you can't eat. There's a prohibition against certain foods. So one, they turned from God's word to man's word. Two, they had a wrong idea of, of, of God's holiness and, and how that comes about. And third, they claim to know God. In verse 16, it says, they claim to know God, but their actions didn't, didn't show it. Again, Paul says that they were rebellious, they were deceivers, they were always liars, they were base animals functioning on the sensual. They were ruled by passion and instinct, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They claimed to know God, and yet their lives were far from it. Contrast, if you will, these false teachers in their lives. Compare that to what Paul had instructed the elders of the church should be. He said that elders are to be, what? Blameless. In marriage, in family, in conduct, in character, in the word. Sometimes when I hear about these false teachers, I'm kind of reminded of sometimes today, we hear false teachers today, we don't think about it, but as we interact with people, I, I can't begin to tell you some of the stories I've heard of people coming to our people and telling them about sin in their lives, not because they're sinning, but because they're not following their rituals or what they believe should be. I've heard, just as Titus heard here, we're Christians and we believe Jesus is the Messiah, but we can't, you can't really know God unless you have been circumcised and maintained the Mosaic Law. That was back then, but now, now we hear maybe you can't really know God unless you speak in tongues, or unless you've done this, you've had this experience, or you may hear it's good to believe in Jesus Christ, but we have this inside information. We know God a lot better than you do. It's kind of this elevated position that they have. They were saying to Christians back then, you only believe in Christ. You're at a very low level. 
You don't really know God until you ascend to where we are. See, they were adding to God's word. God's word said, faith, repent from your sins, turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And they're saying, faith plus, faith plus. Well, question, what do you and what do I bring to God when we come to him for salvation that's offered through Jesus Christ? There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that we can bring to the table except repenting of our sins, believing that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that he died for our sins, that he arose, that he's in heaven. That is all we need. These false teachers, they were around everywhere. Let's look forth. What was Paul's response? And what should our response be to false teachers and their followers? In verse 11, it says that we're to silence them. It says they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families. Silence them. Silence means to, to gag, to muzzle, to bridle. Have you ever seen a dog that's got the muzzle on its mouth? It can't bite. It can't even bark. Paul says, muzzle these false teachers. The question for us, the question for us elders and for the congregation is, how do we silence these people? We hear them. How do we silence them? First, we silence them by not allowing them to teach or to preach or to lead small groups. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, Have nothing to do with these irreverent, silly myths. And 1 Timothy 6, 20, 21 says, Guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. So first, we give them no platform. Secondly, we silence them by teaching God's Word. We silence them by teaching God's Word. Yesterday in the, um, the men's breakfast, Jose mentioned that when, when people are advanced study um, to know how to, to deal with the counterfeit, um, dollars that come in, he said, you know, said they don't study all the false bills. They study the real thing. They study the real dollars. They know it in detail. So we, in order to know false teachers, we need to know God's Word. We need to know it in detail so we can recognize false teaching. Talking with a couple of people who have read the book by Rob Bell, and they said, Pastor Ralph, if you didn't know God's Word, this book would sound so good. It would sound so good. Men, women, brothers, sisters, we must 
dig into God's Word. We must study it. We must know it. We can't rely on what our mom and dad said, teenagers. We have to study. We need to be in a small group like Pastor Chuck said. We need, though, also daily, in just about busy lives, to study God's Word. Third way we silence them is by our godly lives. 1 Peter 2.15 says, This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So first thing, we silence these false teachers, one, by not giving them a platform. Sometimes over the past, not knowingly, we've had people come in. I think back years ago, Pastor Wayne was gone. God's supposed to be good. Supposed to be solid. He came in and he taught some false things. We don't give a platform to false teachers. Secondly, we teach God's word. Third, we live godly lives. And that way, we silence false teachers. Not only are we to silence them, we're to rebuke them. We're to rebuke them. In verses 13 and 14, it says, Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away. Rebuke them. Now, that's not a very tolerant thing to do, is it? Rebuke them? See, this, this rebuke literally means correct them. It's, it's, it's an exposure that convicts and convinces. It convicts and it convinces of the truth. We convict them, we correct them sharply. Well, again, it goes against our political culture, right? We convict them sharply, abruptly, severely, rigorously. Because if we don't, that one little area of false teaching will grow. So we rebuke. We rebuke sharply. Ah. It says that they have turned their back on God's word that they have rejected, they have repudiated God's word. These commands cannot be taken lightly. Church, elders, it's hard. I know the past year our elders have been de- dealing with some very hard, difficult issues. As a matter of fact, this morning, as our elders gathered together to pray, we talked about some issues, and one of the men said, we're dealing with some difficult issues. But this is ministry. This is ministry. Difficult steps to take, but very necessary. When verse 13 it says, Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. They may be sound in the faith. And the word them here, seem to be directed primarily not at the false teachers, but at those within the church who have known the truth, but have been deceived by the false teachers. And it says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound. 
See, the results, there was, there was a result in rebuking. One, that they may be sound in the faith. That they may be sound in their faith. And two, that they might refuse to pay attention to false doctrine. So Paul is giving us hope for these people, some of these people anyway, that will at least followers, rebuke them. You see, we rebuke them because we want them to change. We want them to turn back to the truth, to God's Word. We rebuke them in love so they might walk with God. Well, this morning, we've looked and we've seen that Paul called Titus. He said, remain in Crete. Appoint elders who are able to teach God's word, but also to refute false teaching. Elders, good news, were called to know God's word, to instruct the congregation in it, to confront, to silence false teachers. But men and women, each of us should be solid in God's word. We should know God's word so we too can refute the false teaching. We discussed this morning how Paul had concern because false teaching affected the families, upsetting them, causing division. Looking back over this passage, there are a few lessons I think we can learn for ourselves. One is we need to copy Paul's strategy and maintain his high standards. Paul was profoundly shocked, disturbed by these false teachers. He was concerned. If you study Paul's letters, his epistles, especially the, the pastoral epistles, you'll see that over and over there are allusions to deceivers, to empty talkers, to speculators, to hypocritical liars. The question for you and for me is, do we believe God's Word? Do we believe, do we believe that the Bible is God's Word? Do we reject what God's Word says because our culture doesn't like how it sounds? Because we want to come across in a positive way. We need to maintain Paul's standards. Hold firm to his word. Again, today's in inclusive culture causes us as Christians to want to want to be positive. And that's okay. We want to be positive. We want to be winsome. We, we, we don't go out and, and, and try to offend people. See, the problem in trying to be winsome is when we turn from God's word. We turn from God's word in order to be nice. There's a very strong view that we must remain positive, and yet I say there's a st strong view in God's Word that says we must instruct, we must silence and refute. Well, secondly, we must remember two things. Man is sinful. Man is sinful, but there's hope. But there's hope. Again, remember the picture of these false teachers, 
It wasn't a very pretty picture. They looked pretty bad. They were rebellious, deceivers, detestable, disobedient, always liars. <laughs> you go on and on. But, in the midst of it, Paul says to Titus, rebuke them in hope that they'd repent and turn back to the truth. Well, Rob Bell, in, toward the end of his book, says that salvation is realizing you're already saved. We've all been forgiven. We're all loved equally and fully by God, who has made peace with everyone. He is saying that God has already forgiven us, whether we ask for it or not. Whether we ask for it or not. Whether we repent or not. Whether we believe in Jesus Christ's work or not. And yet scripture says in Luke 3.13, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Hebrews 10.31 says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Isaiah 53, 5 and 10 read, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. It caused him to suffer. And though the Lord makes, makes his life an offering for sin. Very different from what Rob Bell says. And I'm not wanting to pick on Rob Bell. I've, I've listened to many of his, his DVDs. But over the years I've began to question. And I want you to question. Well, John Stott provides three questions for us as we look at false teaching. First he says, is it from God's word? Or is it man's word? Is it God's word? Does it, does it, does it come from God's word? And be careful. What's the context that these people might bring up? Secondly, does it change the heart? Or is it an inward, or rather, is it an outward ritual? Does it change your heart? And third, tied in with that, that second one, does it result in a transformed life? Or is it just a formal creed? These false teachers, they, they had this creed, but their lives were horrible. We need to hold firmly to God's word so that we're able to give instruction, sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Again, elders, that is our job. But men and women, you individually need to know God's word so you can refute it, the false teaching. We need to be in God's word so that we're not drawn away by those who would seek that we follow the commands of man rather than the commands of, follow the demands of, follow commands of man rather than God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, 